This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Is atheism an indulgence of the rich? Are over-educated? And is heaven a fairy story? Nietzsche talks about the death of God. You know, we're not seeing God die necessarily around the world now. There's still, I think, a majority of the people in the world, based on surveys I've seen, certainly would call themselves religious. So God's not dead, but I think God is fading. And when I try to understand that, I think of a question that was asked in a survey in Britain in the 1960s, when a person was asked by the researcher, do you believe in God, and answered, yes. But then the next question was, do you believe in a God that can change the course of events on Earth? And the person's response to that was, no, just the ordinary God. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. The number of Irish people with no religion has increased by over 400% in the last 10 years. And according to a recent Gallup Global Index of Religion and Atheism poll, Ireland now ranks among the top 10 atheist nations worldwide. So how has disbelief shaped our world? And importantly, have the historical accomplishments of those who have challenged religion been somewhat overlooked? American writer and journalist Mitchell Stevens discusses his engrossing new book, Imagine There Is No Heaven, How Atheism Helped Create the Modern World. And be warned, Mitchell spins quite a riveting history. And why do places leave a creative and emotional mark on us? Poets Michael O'Loughlin and Pat Bourne discuss Dublin One City One Book for 2014, If Ever You Go, A Map of Dublin in Poetry and Song. This is a show about insiders and outsiders, belief and memory, individualism and courage. But first, if ever you go to Dublin Town in a hundred years or so, inquire for me in Bagot Street and what I was like to know. The haunting words of Patrick Havner, which this morning's big read takes its title from. If ever you go, a map of Dublin in poetry and song presents a unique invitation to readers to explore street by street one of the world's most famous literary cities through the poems and songs it has inspired. The book features writings familiar and new and includes poets synonymous with the city such as Swift, Yeats, Joyce, Clark, Kavanagh, Kinsla, Healy, Keneally, Bolan Bulger, Meehan Dorgan, as well as a host of others who've made some part of it their own. If Ever You Go is published by Daedalus Press and is edited by Pat Bourne and Jared Smith. What I really liked about this collection of poetry is that it made me think about my city, how I describe it, how I feel it, and importantly, how I understand it. Well, I caught up with one of its editors, Pat Bourne, a well-known poet and writer in his own right, and with poet and translator Michael O'Loughlin, whose many beautiful poems feature in this new collection. I asked Pat how ideas of individualism and personal memory shape this creative map of Dublin. I think the key word there, and I think you've used it now, is individual, because 
very much what we were trying to do with this book as the book started to emerge from a relatively random in the beginning collection of poems was we wanted to honour that sense that it was the city seen from a multitude of perspectives, a multitude of voices and that it was reflecting individual experience that it wasn't going to be and it never set out to be and in fact I think it resists the the temptation to be canonical in the sense that this is the Dublin anthology. I certainly personally would feel very much that a book like this runs a great danger if it tries to establish itself as as the canonical overview of the city. Rather, what I'd want to see is that it contains, as well as the poems we might expect to be there, that you could, in another instance, call canonical the poems that we would have encountered in school or in university study or on the street through popular song and popular uh, repetition and recitation. That it would also include things that are a bit ornery, a bit awkward, a bit unpleasant, a bit out of place, so that that map should always be complicated. The danger is when you start to round it off a little bit, you intentionally then start to make exclusions. Every anthology has its weak point and there are things missed in this and there are things that if somebody else had done it they would have done differently. But I think one has to leave oneself open to that sense that the gathering is what gains attention, but the individual voice is what will, if you like, kind of penetrate into the individual reader because it's a one-to-one at some stage. The One City, One Book celebration and the festival around that is a fantastic thing and it's something that's certainly seldom afforded to a book of poems. But really, the strength of this book will be down to individual poems, I think, and to the recognition by some members of its audience that here's a poem that I hadn't encountered before or I hadn't encountered in the same way. And that's interesting that you, you know, we're talking about individualism and memory. Michael, you mentioned me earlier that you have rediscovered some interesting poems here. Yeah, there are poems that you think you should know or that you should be familiar with uh, and you find that you, you haven't you haven't really read them. Austin Clark, for example, household name in poetry and I read the poems uh, that are included here like with a real shock of discovery as if I'd never read them before. Maybe I read them when I was a teenager but I don't remember. And for me, the book is full of little things like that. I mean, for example, it's very interesting because Yeats is a poet I read all the time. And yet to read Yeats as a Dublin poet is very interesting because you realise what a Dublin poet he is. He almost writes more about Dublin than about anywhere else, including Sligo. And he evokes Dublin very well. And again, I would never have I would never have had that uh, that insight without the book. For that, it's, it's worth it. It certainly is a celebration. But what's interesting is that we have the likes of Damien Dempsey. We have then well-known poets like Kavanagh. So can you talk to me a little bit about this? Well, I think, uh, well, Pat can answer that, uh, the reason why that is uh, better than I can. I think because they chose that particular constraint or that parameter of the geographical thing, there's a lot of writing about individual places. I would imagine that when Pat was editing it, he was like taking what he could get in a lot of cases. Has anybody written about this area? Has anybody written about that area? So if you were just choosing it on another Tyrion, you might have chosen different poems. But I do think that is one of the strengths of the book that there's all kinds of stuff that you don't expect. I mean, Zosimus, yes, you do expect, but you don't expect Phil Linnet, for example, uh, which is a you know brilliant, a brilliant text. And um, I think that was a good choice to go that way, not to stick to the canon as such. Yeah, I think that's what, what Michael's saying there is, is absolutely true. If one had gone out to make a book of Dublin poems, there are poems that would, would be here that are not now here and vice versa. But by zooming in on particular areas and and. And, and having that prerequisite that the poem had to mention or had to be at least and 99% of the poems or, or texts mention specific places and the ones that don't are very clearly set in a geographical space because we wanted that sense of ownership I had done a number of other anthologies over the years and, and, and anyone involved in the small relatively small world of poetry knows that poetry anthologies are not the attack on the bastion that you might imagine that they don't make that huge difference in fact they're very very slow burners what I've always been or recently been recognised recognising is that the 
opportunity to get to an audience, you can only match it, in a sense, by focusing the audience's attention on something. It's not enough to say these are the best poems about Dublin or these are the whatever, but I'd hope that they are in here or most of them are, but that you give someone something as a hook. And when we got to the stage of, of, of working on this book or gathering poems for this book, and at one stage, it's now 400 pages. It was about 1,000 pages. And it would be interesting to explain as well what we what we dropped as much as what we missed. Uh, I still don't know quite what we missed. But one of the things we started dropping were those poems that seemed to be an overview of the city. Uh, historical poems particularly because A, they didn't fulfil that criteria Michael's talking about. They didn't talk about specific place. And also because they tried to sum up the city. That was too neat. There are a couple in there. There's Louis McNeese's yeah. du- famous Dublin poem and there are one or two others. John McNamee has a great acid-tongued poem called Dublin You're a Bitch, which in my psychic mind's eye places the, the, the voice of the poem somewhere like Temple Bar on a Friday night and it's that it's that seedy side of Dublin, if you like, the, the messy side of Dublin. But in general, I think we didn't want to say this is Dublin. In fact, we wanted to go in and, as, as I said earlier, have those in sometimes competing voices. And what you also get, interestingly, I think, I think in the book, interestingly for us as people who are just gathering the poems and saying that goes into the first pile, let's say, and we'll, we'll winnow it down afterward. You found poems speaking to each other either across the city or a poem that was made in roughly the same place as a poem from X number of years before and they answered each other. That's not unusual when you think that everybody who's ever been in a band or sang songs by somebody else, everybody in that tradition acknowledges the the fundamental fact that creativity is is a response to other creativity, that that none of us kind of are just beamed down from elsewhere. And so if somebody picks up the guitar, they're likely to start covering a song by somebody and then adapt it and then make their own voice at a later stage. And poets are exactly the same. And sometimes those echoes are very literal. And you hear the same line almost in two poems where one is responding to the other. And you notice that in a book like this in the same way that you notice gaps. And then you get a kind of a, a sociological come historical view of the city because you can see how certain traditions emerge and you can see the centres of learning and government, etc. being firmly established on the South Keys and the later emergence, really, of, if you like, of the North Side. And there's all of that. We gathered that and sometimes I have to look again at the book to see what actually made the final cut and it's weighted in favour of the contemporary for a whole lot of reasons one is Daedalus is a press dedicated to contemporary poetry the other work is already out there and it's my personal mission as the publisher and there are a number of other people publishing like that to make sure that poetry is not something that happened safely in the past and that we live in a kind of a Disneyland of bearded males who are honoured in the pubs of Ireland you know that's not a place that I want to live that's one big reason the other reason is well there are a number of reasons but another reason is that the tradition mentioned Austin Clark. the tradition really didn't start to become overt until Austin Clark Ancient Evenings where the city started to feature in that kind of detail you go back to Mangan who was quintessential Dublin poet and at least as far as we could see there's no reference to anything that you could say is absolutely definitely Dublin in any of the poems so people can be of a place and not write about it that's a relatively recent event in the literary end of poetry but in the singing end it's not that that happened earlier in song and, and so that's why somebody like Damien Dempsey is here to remind that he's a continuation of a tradition we didn't have the resources to make a song book which would have been a more a more difficult and more expensive undertaking but we wanted to remind people that poetry is not done by a certain class of people all of whom went to a particular university and all of whom have this going you know that it's more complicated than that usefully so and what's interesting is it's shaped pretty much as a book for walk 
walkers that you are north side, south side and Liffey side. Within those walkers there's outsiders and some of those outsiders are from different rural centres mm. across Ireland yeah. and some are poets from America like That's John right. Berryman. Yeah. That's, right. That's the game really with, the, with the, the graphic on the cover which is the walking man sign or the walking person sign you know That's, Dublin is a city that's small enough to walk you can walk from the north to the south side not many cities you can do that and the book itself takes a, a title from Kavanagh's poem if ever you go to Dublin town 100 years or so and Kavanagh was the famous walker He when he moved from Inniskeen in Monaghan to Dublin he walked and he walked everywhere and that poem talks about his, his, his ragged shoes his shoes falling off his feet so it is again that sense of that if you want to see the place you have to go at that speed you can't do it with your GPS and your windows rolled up and just plough through it you don't, you're not in the city then so it is an invitation to, to kind of slow down in a sense and I suppose feel the city yeah absolutely and and that, that sense of you know there, there are a number of poems and one could have produced I have to say a whole anthology of poems people sitting in places like Bewley's and Grafton Street which was the dominant coffee shop for generations if you like and now there are so many others but that sense of sitting and watching the world go by and we've all had that you don't have to be a self-defined creative you know somebody who, who, who makes things in the end but to have that kind of dream moment and watching the world go by we've all done that and and, and I think any of us that, that try to produce a finished product whether it's a song or a painting or a poem have at some stage just sat there and studied the world going by there is a sense that you have to slow down to see what's going on here it's not a dramatic city in that sense the city centre certainly isn't we don't have anything on the scale of the Eiffel Tower or whatever we don't have those kind of buildings the few we have are mentioned here as if they were the Taj Mahal you know yeah uh, there's a great tradition all over the world of poets uh, walking around it's it's what they do Pat was talking there I was thinking of the, the tradition of the flaneur Walter Benjamin defined as the, the man who has no purpose he's got no job to do he's just walking around and a lot of like modern poetry begins with that tradition like Baudelaire walking around Paris with no economic purpose a lot of poets do walk and write at the same time yeah, I wonder only uh, as exactly, a cow exactly, you know yeah. I, was, I was doing nothing I was yeah, out for get a while get out of the room yeah. basically and get out there and you know see things And but it's another it, it's also kind of it's a kind of a primitive archaeology as well because as you're walking around the city you actually feel the city under your feet it's even better on a bike actually I mean I, I live in uh, on Harles Cross Bridge and when I come down to cross to the north side you can actually trace the whole history of the city because you're going downhill away from the Wicklow Mountains and suddenly there's this big hill in front of you that you have to climb up and if you're on a bus or a car you don't really notice that but that's where the city started and you actually feel the reason why the city started there and it's it's a way of exploring the city but I, w- I would say about this book I don't think I, I disagree slightly with Pat here I, th- I don't think that an image of the city really emerges as Dublin there's an image of uh, different parts of the city because I don't think we really have an idea of Dublin and Mangan is an interesting case because he doesn't actually mention anything that we can define as Dublin but of course he does because Dublin is the absence in his work there's not really a feeling of being part of a great city Mangan didn't have that feeling and apparently nobody has that feeling except tourists and I count like Louis McNeese um, a little bit as a tourist in this who wrote one of the best poems about Dublin and he came in and it would have been difficult for a Dubliner to write with that kind of sense of grandeur about Dublin because we don't feel that we don't love the city in that way or even a poet like Seamus Heaney it's very interesting because I think Heaney probably spent more time living in Dublin than anywhere else uh, he spent more time here than he did in um, Mossbon or Ulster anywhere and when he writes about Dublin it's kind of it's strange because one of my favourite poems by Heaney is Viking Dublin but it's very much a tourist's poem it's about you, you go up you come up from the country you go and see the museum and you see the, the bodies and you go back and you tell a fellow in the pub about it so even though Heaney lived here physically um, in Sandymount he didn't actually live in any kind of 
Dublin, but in an imaginative Dublin. And I think the book does raise that question. Why do we not have that feeling? And it's more, it's almost a sociological or um, historical question. Why do we not identify with a larger idea? We identify with the area we live in, or maybe we even identify with the north side or the south side, but we don't seem to love the city in the way, you know, Frank O'Hara used to walk down Broadway thinking, oh my God, I'm in New York. Nobody walks down Grafton Street thinking, oh my God, I'm in Dublin. They think, well, I'm in Grafton Street. (laughs) They don't identify with the other parts of it. Why that should be, I don't know. I think There's a lot of possible explanations that have to do with, I suppose, colonialism and the language and uh, things like that. And maybe globalisation. Well, interestingly enough, it probably hasn't hit literature yet, but I do think that there is a sense of a different kind of Dublin emerging. Because I, I meet a lot of foreigners and uh, who come here for various reasons, and they have this image of Dublin, which is virtually unrecognisable to me. They see it as like San Francisco. It's one of the fun places in Europe to go. And it's very hard for us to see what they see in us in that sense, because we see a very complicated historical place and a place riven by all kinds of divisions uh, and all kinds of strange uh, sort of lacunae in its in its image of itself. But I do think that's, that's emerging. I mean, the city of Google and Facebook and the backpackers and the hostels, one of the biggest growing industries in Dublin at the moment is teaching English as a foreign language. There's schools all over the place for people from South America who associate Dublin with the English language rather than anything else. And again, that's not an image that we really have of ourselves. I think the fact that the book is able to raise questions like that makes it uh, such an interesting project. And certainly I wouldn't have thought that until I read it. I mean, even in my own work, I always thought of myself as a Dublin poet. And then when I was looking for stuff for this anthology, I realised I've written very little specifically about Dublin. But you may have written on other cities or places around the world. I've written a lot about Amsterdam and I've written a lot about uh, Riga because I was a tourist there. I mean, I was 15 years in Amsterdam, which you're still a tourist. Uh, you're not imaginatively linked to the city in the same way. I was here a few months ago talking about uh, Orhan Pamuk and his book about Istanbul. He points out that if you're a writer from a city, you can't actually write about that city because the city has made you. So it's kind of like, it's like that paradox in artificial intelligence. You can't, a system can't create a system more complex than itself. So a writer is a product of the city, but he can't actually write about it in the way that uh, an outsider can. Poets are made in that way. They are an expression of the city. And certainly in this book, there's a lot of poems that are, to me, have a real Dublin feel to them but I find it very hard to define what that feeling is a kind of an atmosphere sombre is the word that springs to mind a lot yeah, of the time a, a very grayness. strange a greyness a, a drabness or something yeah. that comes out Pat I might get you to celebrate Dublin City with a poem this is a very small poem from the book written by a man from New York Ted McNulty who lived in Dublin for a good number of years and he was a kind of a, a feature a staple on the literary diet in the city a lovely warm man an ex-GI his partner was a poet here in the city as well and he published a number of books I think two books here with Salmon Publishing back in the 80s and his poems were short and light and had a kind of um, surreal quality about them which is not something you necessarily associate with Dublin we were talking earlier about this kind of greyness over the city and I suppose that's what it is that's the experience of living in the city I'll just read this A slightly different view The Ring Coats nearly touching in the movie queue that gives me a place on a Saturday night along O'Connell Street. Then I have my plate of chips at Beshoff's, wait for the number eight by Eden Key and break. Go over the wall, down wet steps, run on the Liffey, under its bridges, out to the bay and the Bailey light, my lost gold ring. There's just something lovely about it. Now it is about loss and it is about something unspoken there but that sudden sense that you can go down and you can have this kind of mind trip and the river becomes a road that you rush out on. 
There's just something very extraordinary happening that you don't hear in very many of the poems by Dubliners. That's not the experience of living in the place. The place is kind of hemmed in and it is this brick upon grey brick that McNeese talks about. But it's those little moments of surprise and change and lift that I enjoyed most because I thought I knew what kind of poems Dublin was going to provoke in citizens and visitors alike. And it's the exception that makes the rule, I suppose. Now, incidentally, Michael, I have to congratulate you because one of the more curious poems about the changes taking place in society today and certainly in and around the cityscape of Dublin is the changes we see on Parnell Street and you have a poem about that in the collection. Well Parnell Street is uh, a street off O'Connell Street it was very run down in my youth it was where I used to get the bus home to Finglas every day not only that I was born in the Rotunda which is on Parnell Street so I always felt a kind of attachment to Parnell Street and I lived abroad for 20-25 years when I came back Parnell Street had been completely transformed into a, a different street Polish bar Chinese restaurants and so forth and yet in a way it was still much the same street that I had left so I found uh, kind of an interesting sort of contrast there so that's where this, this poem came from also the fact that I had a dream I was born on Parnell Street and I had a dream once that I would die there and uh, this kind of inspired the poem Parnell Street This is my first address This is where my mouth first opened After half a century I'm here again as if the rotunda midwife had never cut the cord. Fair shades, my first loves, stand at the fingless bus stops, or shelter in the doorways of extinct pubs. Here is the basement where young poets cuffed each other with sheathed claws, the attics where we rehearsed our lives as songs by Leonard Cohen. In the surprisingly beautiful 50s flats behind the Georgian facades, I returned to film children who saw religious statues move, the old god's last performance. Now the gods have gone, but those children's children still play on the streets, fearless and insolent as ever. The world has followed me back here, like multicoloured gum on my shoe. Now I hear again every language I ever heard, drink beer I crossed the continent to taste. The old Shakespeare pub is a Korean restaurant, but nothing has changed. Men and women still face each other at tables, trying to rewrite the night to a different ending. In dreams, I often returned here, looking for my life, which was hiding in an alley like a wounded animal. Now I am afraid that this is where death will find me, wearing your eyes. When we reflect upon the city and Michael's poem there on Parnell Street and the changes. There are universal experiences in any city. There are and there should be in any book as well. And I mean the facts of death, birth and marriage if you like if you want to reduce it to that are going to be here as well. I mean I was thinking of Michael saying I was born in that street and sometimes when I go back to that street I have a sense that the circle is going to close and there's a poem by Mary O'Donnell about losing her, her father in a Dublin hospital as well and you get that sense that the big occasions if you like, occasions is the right word but the big events of a life are going to be recorded by poems because that's when people reach for poems for protection or succour or, or, or whatever it is are out of habit to uh, when people fall in and out of love all those major seismic changes but there are again the kind of smaller things that will help to identify the character of a city if not the fabric of it so there are things that are particular about here and about hereness you know if you, when you read Joyce talking there earlier about uh, Oran Pamuk Joyce for whom Daedalus Press was named, not by me, but by my predecessor, didn't make his homage to Dublin until he left the city because he couldn't have done it here. And I mean, he, he might have been distracted when he was abroad and he was looking for Tom's directory, street directory, so he could put every house back into its proper order and every premises back into its proper order. But it was the project of an exile. So in a sense, that sense of loss and, and exclusion and being away from the thing is often what provokes a remaking of it or curiosity about it in the same way that the second generation Irish-American typically has this interest in, in Ireland. But we're also looking for the kind of 
into telling detail. There's a poem here, for instance, by Keith Payne, who's a young writer born in 1975, so one of the younger people represented in the book. And it's about trying to score tobacco on Henry Street, you know, and buying it in the pouches. And for all the obvious reasons, and, it, you know, it dates the poem very much. We're 10 years approximately this week after the smoking ban, and that's when smokes on the street really took off. So it says something about the fabric of the city, and it's a recognisable portrait. And I think for that reason, it's worth having a go at, and I may not make a great job of it. Love letter to my Henry Street dealer. Keep your eyes peeled for the copper's love. They're all over the shop today. Her hand disappears into wintry layers, roots round reinforced braziers, fumbles under cork and slips out magically holding my pouch a Dutch love letter from my Henry Street dealer still warm from the heat of her oxter 50 fat grams of half-square shag in my back pocket I'm flush for the week padded against the cold days to come a flourish of rolling and smoking down the basement flat till the soft tendril strands whisper away and I make my way back to the street for more of what's beneath her liberty bodice Terrific violin music was from the unbelievable Quivino Rally, and this is how we fly collective. Ending this week's interview with Pat Boren and Michael O'Loughlin. Dublin One City One Book for 2014. Coming up next, Imagine There Is No Heaven How Atheism Helped Create the Modern World. A book that truly deserves to be on every skeptic's bookshelf. Talking Books on News 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you've missed any of our shows to date, well, don't worry. They're all up as podcasts on our programme webpage. All you need to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. Or if there's a book or author you'd like me to highlight on the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's great to get your emails really great. Okay, now on to quite a provocative and gripping narrative on the history of disbelief. The historical achievements of religious belief have been large and well chronicled. But what about the accomplishments of those who have put reason ahead of blind faith? Travelling from classical Greece to 21st century America, Imagine There Is No Heaven, How Atheism Helped Create the Modern World by Mitchell Stevens explores the role of disbelief in shaping Western civilization. This book asks some hugely interesting questions. For example, how has atheism pushed the world of science, art, politics and psychology forward? And why have free thinkers been censored out of history? I have to say, Stevens' book is smart and full of personality and offers evocative 
portraits of philosophers and writers such as Sartre and Camus and also the courageous tales of history's most important atheists like Denis Diderot, Jack Rousseau, Freud, Salman Rushdie, Charles Bradlaugh and Ernest Rose. Stevens makes an extraordinarily strong case for their ongoing importance to the way believers and non-believers think and live. Mitchell Stevens is an historian and journalist and professor in the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. His books include A History of News and The Rise of the Image and The Fall of the Word. Mitch has written extensively on media, thought and culture for the New York Times, the Washington Post and many other publications. And when I rang him last week, I have to say I found it hard to put down the phone. Let's take a listen. I think the effects of atheism and related versions of non-belief have been really profound in the world. Going back to the days of the Greeks, it was Thucydides, who gives no evidence of religious belief, who really wrote down some of the first history without miracles happening, without people riding dolphins and omens coming true and so on. And the scientific revolution, while a lot of the scientists, including Newton, were religious in his great work, The Principia Mathematica, Newton never mentions God in this whole effort to explain the heavens. I think the fact that God was left out enabled scientific explanations to take off. I mean, the Enlightenment was very much the product of a group of non-believers, not everyone but some. And obviously Darwin was probably a non-believer before he worked out his theory of evolution. It didn't go the other way around. So, you know, I think in terms of understanding the natural world, getting the supernatural out has been critical. And Mitch, I was very interested to read about the Karvakas in India and their understanding of belief or non-belief. Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated to learn that perhaps going back to the time of the Buddha, there was a sect of non-believers in India, which I associate with the birth of a lot of religions. But there were people who were questioning religion going back to that time and lasted a long time. And some of their views of things are quite poetic. For example, they asked, who paints the peacocks? Could anybody paint the peacocks? In other words, nature does it. And they questioned the idea of an afterlife and karma and all those things that we associate with some of the Indian religions they were questioning. Now, Mitch, you say in the book, we have a weakness for the fabulous. Can you tell me about this and how this relates to ideas on religion and belief? Well, one of the interesting questions is why do human beings have religion? Most all human societies seem to have some form of religious belief. And I think there's been a lot of interesting work on that recently. One of the things that seems to happen is that to survive through natural selection, it's really useful if you find connections between things. If you decide that that bush gives sweet, healthy berries, and then you come back to that bush. The problem is that human beings will make more connections than are really there. They'll decide that that area might be haunted or that there might be a god in the clouds. And human beings also have developed through natural selection to like really outlandish, really odd stories, because you have to be alert to the really outlandish, the really odd, the really fabulous in religion and stories of gods and miracles and so on, are fabulous. So I think this is another explanation for why religion has been so common in human societies. But the interesting thing, Mitch, there is that human beings have a tremendous capacity for doubt. 
Yes, and that was really interesting to learn. I'm to start looking at the anthropological literature and seeing how often in societies doubters turn up, even in preliterate societies where, according to some thinkers, you would never have any questioning of religion. You do. You know, for example, uh, a European in the 19th century in East Africa meets somebody he calls a wild, naked savage and gets into a conversation using a couple of interpreters about religion, and he tries to convince this tribal man, tribal chief actually, that there's life after death and the chief's response is, how can that be? Can a man who's buried get up and walk again? Of course not. So I think just as religion is basic to human societies, I think there have always been people who have questioned it, who doubt it, because that too is a survival factor, trying to figure out what is true and what might not be true. Mitch, can we talk a little bit about Anacreon? He was a Greek poet born in 570 BC and he put forward the idea of living joyously. Anacreon is a wonderful figure because he's a poet of uh, wine and lust and somehow his name seems to have survived so well that there were Anacreontic clubs in London in the 19th century. And, and it's important to the story of atheism because that has always been this belief that we should live joyously has always been an important impetus to questioning of religion. You know, why should I not be happy in this life? Why should I worry all the time about some future life which seems unlikely to happen? Why not dance and sing, eat, drink, and be merry in this life? So that was one of the more fun discoveries in doing this book is just how important this theme, which tends to get named after this old ancient Greek poet from before the time of Socrates, Anacreon, has been in the history of disbelief. So what are the ethics of atheism? Like we have different types of Buddhists, different types of Muslims, different types of Christians. So I imagine there's different types of atheists. Well, one nice thing about the different sects, if you want to call it that, of disbelief, the different kinds of atheists is they tend not to kill each other, which is a really nice thing. And the same can't be said of Christianity or, or sects of Islam. But I think there are different varieties of disbelief. There's agnostics, for example, which goes back to the 19th century in England. That was a word made up by uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, who are less sure than atheists. And I think there are different ways of being an atheist. You can be an anacreontic atheist, which means that you believe life should be enjoyed. You can be a scientific atheist who believes that it's crucial that we figure out how the natural world works. You can be a a politically minded atheist and believes that religion has kept people down with this promise of an afterlife and that the important thing is to crusade in this life for human happiness and human freedom, for human rights. There are a lot of ways of doing it, but fortunately, uh, they tend not to uh, battle with each other. Can we talk about some of the great Enlightenment philosophers like Voltaire, David Hume or Baron de Holbach? Well, one of the most fertile periods in the history of disbelief is the Enlightenment in France. That's probably the period historians are most likely to associate with atheism. And for good reason. Some of the characters there are well known. Denis Diderot, the great philosopher who undertook the wonderful encyclopedia project in France, where they tried to collect all the world's knowledge, a wonderful intellectual step forward. Voltaire 
Voltaire, a little bit older than Diderot, was not an atheist. He was a deist, but he was very anti-Christian because he thought that the church was involved in lots of injustices in 18th century France. But my favorite character from that period is not as well known, and it's Baron de Holbach, a German aristocrat who was living in France who ran for decades a salon that attracted some of the great thinkers of the time. Diderot was his buddy and was almost always there. Rousseau was there. David Hume, the great Scottish skeptical philosopher, when he was in Paris, he would stop by. And Benjamin Franklin, when he was representing the United States in Paris, seems to have come by and visited Baron de Holbach's salon. There was a group of atheists there. At some point, Hume announced that he didn't believe there was such a thing as atheists. And then Baron de Holbach's response was, look around the table. Almost everybody here is an atheist. And Baron de Holbach also published a whole series of underground books questioning religion at this time. So it was a lively group and a lively period and a tremendously important one. And I think it's no coincidence that a lot of new ideas about anti-colonialism, obviously anti-monarchy, about human rights, pro-divorce, came out of this period, as did this great explosion of learning associated with philosophy and the Encyclopedia Project. And I was very interested to read about George Washington and his ideas on religious tolerance and about the pluralities of belief. Can you tell me about him? Because he was a very intriguing character and he was quite crafty in how he managed his own private beliefs. This is actually still a rather charged issue in the United States, what the religious beliefs of the founding fathers were. The Christian right has been very much arguing for the idea that these were all devout Christians, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and John Adams. Those who believe in freedom of religion and don't want the Christian right to be as dominant as they've become like to point out that the founding fathers were not conventionally religious. George Washington, who was probably the least philosophically minded of them, once noted that the American empire, he called it, not a term we would use today, was not created in an age of superstition and darkness. It was created in this enlightened age. So even Washington was alert to what was going on in France and England and Germany in the Enlightenment and to the fact that uh, superstition was being questioned in this period. And when Washington died, he did not have a clergyman attending him. His response to his death, according to one witness there, was not a prayer. It was just to say, I am going. And John Adams probably spent more time in church than the other of the founding fathers, but even he had some interesting non-traditional views, more deistic views of religion. And Thomas Jefferson was very much a questioner of religion. And I think it's significant that when Benjamin Franklin died, one book from his library was given to Thomas Jefferson, who was then president of the United States. And it was a book by Baron de Holbach. So I think a pretty good case could be made that these people, while not atheists, were people who question religion in various ways. And it's interesting, Mitch, that other political theorists and mavericks all revered some writers on atheism. If you look at John Stuart Mill and, of course, Karl Marx, I think Karl Marx said that Diderot was his favourite writer. 
Yeah, well, you know, Marx clearly was an atheist. I mean, this is maybe, given what, you know, some of what happened in the 20th century, maybe Marx isn't the one you want to have on your team. But one of the things that's interesting is that in London, at the time when Karl Marx was living there, you have Charles Darwin publishing maybe the book that did the most for non-belief and disbelief that did the most to question religion in human history, the origin of species. You also have John Stuart Mill, who was raised an atheist by his father, James Mill, publishing in the same year his book on liberty, which, you know, the case could be made, established the political system that has spread around much of the world in the 20th century. You had Marx working on his communist ideas, which certainly atheistic. And you also had a, a gentleman by the name of Charles Bradlaugh, who fascinates me, who was a working class boy, had to leave school at the age of 12 to work and help support his family, and then started losing his religion at the age of 14, got kicked out of his parents' home, and went on to become probably the leading atheist in the world in the 19th century. And then, uh, for one final twist in his story, got himself elected to Parliament, though it took him a while before they allowed him to take his seat because of disputes over whether he was going to have to take an oath on a Bible. So the 19th century, particularly in Britain, particularly in London, was a really rich period in this history. And talking about Darwin, Darwin was a big fan of Shelley and his poetry. Do you think in some way that influenced his ideas on religion? Shelley was kicked out of Cambridge for writing a pamphlet called on the necessity of atheism, and then actually bringing it to a bookstore and trying to place copies there. It took him only a few days before uh, before they started working to kick him out of the university. And Shelley's poems played a major role for Charles Darwin, for a number of other people, Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher of the 20th century, as they confronted the fact that they didn't seem to believe in a god anymore. Russell, for example, and Darwin were kind of horrified. My God, how can I live without this? And Shelley's poems made it clear that you can live a vibrant, creative, lively life. Nobody was more vibrant, creative, and lively than Shelley in his short life and still not believe in God. So I think it was very important for Darwin and others. Now, I really enjoyed in Imagine There Is No Heaven reading about Albert Camus. Can you talk to me, Mitch, about his disbelief? What I love about Camus is he's starting to work on the answer to a really difficult question that the death of God, to use Nietzsche's term, presents, which is how do we carry on without this system of meaning? Nietzsche talks about that when God dies, it wipes away the horizon. We're all disoriented. We don't know, you know which way's up, which way's down, what's good, what's bad. And in some ways, this has been the problem of the 20th century and still the problem of the 21st century. Where do we find meaning without religion? And Camus starts to do it in fascinating ways. I'm particularly interested in his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, talking about this fascinating Greek character who we know is pushing a stone up a hill and then it falls down again and he has to push it up a hill again. I mean, it sounds like a nightmarish fate. And Camus tries to find a kind of joy in this meaningless, unproductive behavior. So yes, we're not working towards heaven. We're not in fear of hell. Maybe we're not accomplishing a huge amount, but still we can take pleasure in small joys. He talks about the wondering little voices of the earth. 
and maybe with God's baritone gone, we have a better chance to understand the wondering little voices of the earth. I found that very moving and meaningful, I would say, for me. And Mitch, is quite fascinating because there is the argument that from looking at the world without religion or without faith, that we've driven great medical progress, great scientific progress, and that we've challenged and progressed the world way more positively? Or do you think that's pushing it a bit? I think we can credit a lot to belief. In some senses, the two most important human accomplishments, you could argue, have been liberty and learning. And it's interesting that the times when these things advance tend to be times when atheists are around, as, for example, in ancient Greece, as, for example, during the Enlightenment or in London in the 19th century, in time of the American Revolution. And I think the connection between learning and disbelief is pretty clear. If you are spending all your time trying to understand the supernatural, you're not going to put as much energy into trying to figure out the natural, to trying to figure out what's going on here. And I think the connection between liberty and disbelief is also so clear because if you're counting on life in some other world, some world after death, you're going to be less demanding of what human life can be in this world. One of the atheists I talk about in my book calls it the only world we're ever going to know. And the notions that we follow about human rights and about democracy go back, first of all, to the Greeks, obviously, but also go back to Enlightenment thinkers in the 18th century, particularly in France, and also into people like John Stuart Mill, an atheist in England in the 19th century. I'm interested in what you make of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and other popular atheists who have a very trenchant view. Well, yes, I lean towards a fairly trenchant view myself. I think most atheists, including these new atheists like Hitchens and Dawkins and others, who I think have done some really important work in helping people think critically about religion. But I'm not sure any of them would say that there's no possibility anywhere in the universe that there might be something a little strange. I think what they would say is it's hugely unlikely. And most of the characters in my book would say the same thing. There's a wonderful line from Bertrand Russell, a great 20th century atheist out of Britain, who says that, yes, there may be a teapot orbiting Venus. I guess there's some chance of that. You know, we haven't looked all around, but it seems really unlikely. And Bertrand Russell's idea and the idea of many of the people I write about in my book is that God, the idea of a God similar to the one described in the Bible is similarly unlikely. So I don't think these people can be called close-minded. I think they have a sense of what's likely, what's probable, what's plausible, to use a word from an ancient Greek skeptic. So is religion in serious trouble, Mitch? Nietzsche talks about the death of God. You know, we're not seeing God die necessarily around the world now. There's still, I think, a majority of the people in the world, based on surveys I've seen, certainly would call themselves religious. The number who would say that they're out-and-out atheists is about 13% globally, according to the most recent survey I've seen. So God's not dead, but I think God is fading. And when I try to understand that, I think of a question that was asked in a survey in Britain in the 1960s, when a person was asked by the researcher, do you believe in God, and answered, yes. But then the next question was, do you believe in a God that can change 
the course of events on Earth? And the person's response to that was, no, just the ordinary God. And I think the God of the people who remain religious, the majority of the world's inhabitants, is a much more ordinary God than our grandparents' God, than our ancestors' God. I think we tend, obviously I'm generalizing here, and there are plenty of exceptions in my country, in the United States, around the world, in Islamic areas certainly, but I think in general, even people who are religious look to God for less. I think religions demand less in many ways, again I'm generalizing, than they used to. I think we're seeing religions fade. Shelley has a wonderful line where he says religions aren't necessarily going to disappear, but they're going to become increasingly unregarded. And I think we're seeing that today. Gorgeous music there was from the British composer Max Richter. And if that didn't pull the heart out of you this morning, I don't know what will. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan, who helped out in research, and to the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end this week's show with a quote from the illustrious James Joyce, who once observed... I always write about Dublin because if I can get to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all the cities in the world. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.